Daniel this week, we're going to go to the book of Luke. So flip over to the book of Luke. If you're not sure where the book of Luke is, uh, there's a table of contents in the front. I'll tell you right where to go. Um, man, 25 weeks in 12 chapters, the book of Daniel. Trying to figure out how we can be faithful people, faithful to God in a culture, in a world that is less than faithful. And, uh, I mean, that's a lifelong journey, right? I mean, if any of you feel like, you, you've, like you've got it, like you're there, like please come talk to me after because I'm going to need a little help, right? Because my heart, uh, though it is desperate for and longs for Jesus, it is consistently being drawn back this way. And, and that's why... Romans chapter 12 tells us that the spiritual act of worship is the renewing of our minds. And, and we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and then all of our minds. And how does all of that work? And I believe that as he begins to shape our hearts, he begins to change the way that we think. And so the things that I used to think were satisfying are no longer satisfying. How many of you have ever tried to quit something? Like smoking. I, I'm, I'm told that quitting smoking is hard, but I'm telling you quitting Coke, uh, a cola. <laughs> I felt like I needed to qualify that. <laughs> Quit, stop. Ceasing to drink soda is impossible. Uh, so congratulations to those of you who quit smoking, but I promise you, you haven't experienced anything as difficult as quitting soda. You don't have to quit coffee. It's natural. It comes from the earth. It's just seeds that have been burnt, ground up, roasted to your liking. I just thought of the, the Coke thing, like things that you find satisfying. And, and, and you know they're not, they're not good for you. And you, you can read all the statistics and uh, all of the blog posts that people who have mastered the art of not drinking soda put out there. But my heart still longs for that sound of the refrigerator being opened, right? Because the sound of the refrigerator opening is the, the one sound before the psh, right? And is there a more satisfying sound than the I always try to find little interesting pictures like that that, that remind me of, of what I know is good and best for me and what is being distracted from. And I know that water, water poured through, r burnt up seeds uh, is better for me than soda, but there's just something about the bubbles and the things that keep drawing me off sides. So... In thinking about where we would go next and what we would do next, I, 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 in reading just all sorts of different things, what's going on in, in the church world and, and, and what different people are thinking and saying and then praying and, and talking to the Lord and, and also in conversations with you guys and, and other people like you, um, trying to figure out what people struggle with the most. And how can we answer that? 
one of the, the things that, that we as the church struggle with is knowing and understanding the story of Jesus. I don't think we spend enough time examining and exploring the story of Jesus because Jesus did all of this so that we could be the church. And, and so really, we spend our time in the church trying to figure out how to be the church. Like the story of Jesus is easy, right? It's simple. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, and we're going to explore that over the next four weeks, and that's an interesting story. And then he lived for a, a certain amount of time, and then he started to do ministry. And then in his ministry, he did some really cool magic tricks and drew some really... Uh, just wonderful crowds of people who loved and adored him and they would never do anything bad to them and then uh oh twist in the story they kill him uh but good news he's Jesus so he comes back to life and all of that happens so that we could be the church and and I think sometimes we approach the story of Jesus with a little bit of I don't know which I think leads me to the second question. We don't spend enough time knowing the story of Jesus. And the second thing that I, I talk to people about is, I just don't know how to share my faith with people. I don't know how to tell people what God has done. And I think that the two are linked. I think that we struggle to share our faith because we don't really, truly, honestly know the story of Jesus. Because if you knew the story of Jesus, telling the story of Jesus would not be hard. Telling what Jesus has done for you and through you wouldn't be hard because you know the story of Jesus. And so here's what I want us to spend the next who knows how many weeks doing. Let's just try to figure out how to wrap our hearts and our minds around the story of Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus treat people? Because this is, this is something that gets said to me a lot. And other pastor friends of mine. I just don't think Jesus would say that to people. I don't think Jesus would do that. I don't... I, I'm not sure Jesus would be bothered by that. Like one, one of the most quoted verses in the history of prayer gatherings is Matthew chapter 18 verse 20. And, and you hear it prayed all the time. Lord, thank you so much that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are there with us. Right? Like that's something that if you've been to a prayer meeting somewhere, you know. But most of us don't know in the story of Jesus that that comes immediately after. Jesus tells people how to deal with sin in the church. If you've got a problem with somebody in the church you go to them and talk about it and if that doesn't fix it then you take someone with you and, and if that doesn't fix it then you go and you bring them before the elders and the church and if that doesn't fix it you put them out of the church and I'll tell you this wherever two or three are gathered in my name I'll be there with you but Jesus would never ask someone to leave the church Jesus would never be so bothered by someone's sin that he would ask them to not be a part of the fellowship. Jesus wouldn't be bothered by divisive spirits. He wouldn't do that, right, Pastor Jay? He wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, except for Jesus taught his people how to do that. So we've got this picture of gentle Jesus. 
right? Jesus who, Pastor Jay and I had this conversation just a couple weeks ago, Jesus who stood before his accusers silent, like a sheep before his shearers is silent. See, Jesus, gentle Jesus just took what was coming to him. When we forget that Jesus walks into the temple and sees people selling goods, selling animals for sacrifice, people taking lightly the sacrifice, people making a profit on that, and he flips these tables over and kicks them out. See, we, we take this gentle Jesus picture because it's easy, it's palatable. It's Jesus, gentle Jesus wouldn't ever call anyone out for their sin. Gentle Jesus wouldn't say, God says this, so I do this. God says this and you're not doing that, so let's fix this together. Gentle Jesus would never say that. Gentle Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay. Like, God says you shouldn't do that, but you know, in your time and in your interpretation of what God says, then you just, gentle Jesus says this, you do you, right? The Bible's up for, it's, it's up for debate. It's up for interpretation. This might mean this for me and that's good for me and it might not mean that for you. So what, is, what does God mean for you? Except for that's the wrong picture of Jesus. That's not the picture that we see of Jesus. So we've got these four gospels and how do they how are they different? How do why why did we pick Luke? Matthew has long been accepted as the the primary gospel. It's the one that we run to because Matthew was one of the disciples. Matthew is an eyewitness account. It's not Luke and and Mark or our second generation. They didn't see it for themselves. They were taught it. And so they're kind of, John is always seen as the spiritual gospel. If you want the spiritual picture of Jesus, you go to John. Oh, you're new to all of this? Read John. It's the easiest. It's the quickest. It'll give you the best picture of... Luke is the longest. Luke wasn't written to be a standalone book, but Luke was written in a two-volume set, right? It's like, how many of you have read or watched the movies, the, the Lord of the Rings? Like, how incomplete would the picture be if you only read the first one? Or, or how incomplete would the picture be if you just read the second one? Like you have no idea why these people are marching around looking for this ring and how to get rid of it. And you have no idea whether or not they actually get rid of the ring. Uh, it's just kind of the middle of a story. There's a really cool battle scene. That's cool. Gandalf comes over on the fifth day at first light. On the fifth day, look to the east where the sun rises and they get blinded and they win, right? In the face of sheer defeat, but they win, but you don't get a picture of the beginning. You don't get a picture of the end. So Luke wrote a two-volume set, Luke and Acts. You hear this set? I've even said this. Paul is the greatest contributor, not, not necessarily the greatest contributor in totality, but Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Right? Because if you add up the books that Paul wrote, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Except that Paul wrote... 
125 fewer verses than Luke did. Luke wrote 2,157 verses. 2,157 verses between Luke and Acts. This is what Luke wanted to accomplish. He wanted us to understand the story of Jesus. Not necessarily from the most spiritual. Not necessarily from an eyewitness account. But he wanted us to have a full picture. So he, he ends it, and here's the title today. Most Excellent Theophilus. And it's a really weird title. Um, but we're going to get there. Because I think at some point, all of us have been. And at some point, all of us will come across a Theophilus. So let's get there together. I got a cough. This is going to hurt real bad. All right. Now I'm ready. All right, Luke chapter 1. We're, we're going to make it four verses in today. Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the, the things you have been taught. We're going to just look at uh, the message of Luke. We're going to kind of set up a framework for the why and the how. In three, in three phases. So the first one is the pattern. The pattern that Luke writes with is the pattern of a second generation person. A person who was taught these things. Uh, he didn't watch them happen, but he was taught them. Luke was a doctor. Luke is, is an educated man. Luke also wrote the most grammatically correct version of the story of Jesus. So people like Vince, who are in love with a, a particular kind of comma, right? I didn't know there were, I didn't know that there were multiple commas, but like going to college, you got to choose what college you're going to go to. Uh, there's, there's a Stanford comma and a University of Texas comma, but Vince loves the Oxford comma. Is that correct? Did I get it right? He loves that. He loves this. If you don't know what an Oxford comma is, let the English teacher amongst us teach you after church today. But, but Luke, being a doctor, being an educated man, being who he was, having been raised a Gentile, so here's the extra twist. Luke's an outsider. Luke isn't a person of the promise of God. The promise was given to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his children. Luke is an outsider. So this pattern that Luke is writing, he's writing as an outsider. He's writing as one who doesn't have first-hand knowledge. So he's an outsider by birth. He's an outsider by eyewitness testimony. But he is 
educated and insistent on knowing. So he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, what he says is, all right, I get it. I'm not the first person that's tried to write the story of Jesus. The, the King James Version uh, says, instead of a narrative, it says a declaration. As many among us who have undertaken to write a declaration of the things that have been accomplished among us, or the, the King James also says, a declaration of things that must be believed. So I'm not the first person that's tried to do this. Many other people have written declarations of the things that must be believed. Many people have written stories about what has happened. Just as those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us. So he tells you there, just as those who were eyewitnesses would tell you, again, he's not an eyewitness. So Luke is writing to us as an outsider by birthright. He's an outsider by eyewitness testimony. He, but he is writing as one who needs us to know what to believe. Then the second one is his presentation. How is he going to present all of this stuff to us? There in verse 3, it seemed good to me having followed. Uh, the, the Greek word there, followed, is a better, better word. It doesn't flow as easy. It's not as easy to read, but investigated. Maybe you circle the word followed in your Bible and right there, out there into the, the side. It seemed good to me having investigated all things for some time. So it's not just something that he heard and then he passed on. But it was something that he investigated. And that's where I think the Lord is leading us to easy survey in the room, we could all raise our hands and say, yeah, I know the story of Jesus. Yeah, I've heard that. But how many of us in the room could truly, honestly say, I've investigated these things. You see, there's, there's a difference between knowing and experiencing. You can know you can know about tornadoes. My, my daughter, Grace, is consumed with tornadoes. I don't know why, but she's like, when we're going on vacation, like the first question is, are there tornadoes there? No, there's not tornadoes there. There, there are no tornadoes in Orlando. Are there hurricanes there? Not currently. Right? But you can know about tornadoes. You can read and you can understand the science. But if you've never experienced a tornado, do you really know about tornadoes? If you have only experienced a tornado, but have no idea what happened, have no idea of the science, do you really know about tornadoes? No. 
You, you know that there was a loud sound that sounded like a freight train coming down and you used to have a fence in your backyard and your neighbor used to have a house. But guess what? You no longer have a fence and your neighbor no longer has a roof. But I'm not quite sure what happened. I think it got windy. So in Texas, we have tornadoes and we have something called straight line winds where the winds reach the same speed as a tornado, but there's no swirling. That's a good word, thanks. There's no swirling. There's no cone. So if you don't know, if you haven't studied, you don't know the difference between a tornado because here's what happens in a tornado, for those of you who've never experienced it, you get a mattress and uh, you go to the bathtub and all four of you lay down in a bathtub that's not big enough for one of you and you cover yourself with a mattress until the horn stops blowing. Or if you're like me, you go out into the driveway, which made my wife just go nuts. You go into the bathroom with the mattress. I'm going outside, because here's the deal. Jesus knows when I'm going to die, and he knows how I'm going to die, and if it's this tornado, I'd rather see it coming than be buried underneath a mattress, right? But Luke's saying, here's the deal. A lot of us can tell what we've experienced. And that's a really good thing to be able to tell people. But if you can't tell them the science behind it, if you have no concrete information, you're leading people down the road of experiential Christianity. And experiential Christianity says this. I don't really like that church. Why not? I don't know. I just didn't really feel anything. You know, they were singing... And everybody else seemed to know the songs, but I didn't. And the hair didn't stand up on the back of my neck. So that's how I know this isn't a good church. Because I didn't experience anything. We, we've even started calling this time together worship experiences. What, what time is your church's worship experience? Uh, well, it starts like midnight on Monday... Um, and then it ends at like midnight the next Monday uh, and then we just do it again like we, our church's worship experience isn't 10.30 to noon on Sundays right because experience limits what we're doing to a time and a place and you, you can really experience worship which then leads us down this road to the next step worship is the songs that we sing that's, that's what experiential Christianity do man I was really into worship today. They played that old Praise the Name song. That song's dope. My favorite part's when at the end he stops playing and he stops singing and lets all of us do it. Man, the hairs on my neck just go bing. Love it. Oh man, when they play that Revelation song or that No Longer Slaves song, gosh. Worship is dynamite at that point. Except for worship is not about music. Worship, if you look it up, it's divine respect or admiration offered to an object of esteem. Respect or admiration offered to an object of esteem or the attention you pay to the thing you value most. Who do you worship? I worship Jesus. This is not a tithing ceremony. 
sermon. The word I was looking for was sermon. This is not a tithing sermon, but you could tell somebody what you worship by just letting them look at your checkbook. Which, by the way, no one does checkbooks anymore. Um, no one... A quick survey here. How many of you know how to balance a checkbook? I don't. My dad tried to teach me. He's not here this week. He was here last week. So I can tell you this. Why do I need to balance that? The internet does that for me. We can have this conversation later. I, I don't even think we own checks. But, but you can tell... You can tell what you worship by where you spend your money. You can look like I tried to put together a budget a couple of months ago. Gets, the math gets complex in there. But I found a spreadsheet that does the math for you and it shows you in a pie chart where your money goes. And that's depressing. Right? Start of the month, like the tithe goes in and haven't really spent any other money, and it's like, woohoo, this is awesome. All of our money goes to Jesus. This is killer. I can't wait to tell my friends how good we are at giving to Jesus. And then several trips to McDonald's later. So many trips to McDonald's later that the lady in the drive-thru knows you by name and recommends you for your daycare service true story ask my wife about that and the pie chart begins to start to fill up with other things so Luke is saying listen I'm not the first person to try to write all this stuff down but I'm trying to write down something orderly it seemed good to me having investigated or followed things closely for some time past to write so I'm going to present to you something that isn't just emotion-based. It's not just based on what I experienced, but it was information that I sought out. And no, I didn't see it, which means I had to dive in and get around those who did. Which tells us one thing about our small groups. We have to be in small groups. And we have to be led by people in our small groups who have dove in and sought to know these things. Not just experience, because here's the deal. Experience is a great thing to get you in the door. Right? Like, I saw Blue Man Group a few years ago. And it was a great experience. And I have told people ever since, anytime they say, should I go see Blue Man Group? Absolutely, you should go. It is an experience unlike anything else. Well, how do they do what they do? I don't know. Just, just you gotta experience it. And there's a certain level to this thing called faith in Jesus that requires experience. You have to come to the point where you realize that you are broken and dead in sin. And you have to experience the life-giving power of the gospel. Not, not just know that Jesus died for your sins, but you have to experience. Man, this church all, you guys just preach about sin a lot. Well, here's the deal. 
until we understand and feel the gravity of sin, we will never understand the gravity of grace. But grace just says God's not bothered by your sin. Gentle Jesus would tell you he's not bothered by your sin. But someone who has investigated these things would tell you Jesus is bothered by your sin and still bears the scars on his body for the payment of your sin. And if he can look down and see the scars for the payment of your sin, you should be bothered by them too. Bothered not because you feel guilty and you owe God something, but bothered by them so that you can feel grateful that you don't have to bear those scars. So get around people who have investigated these things. Get around people who aren't content knowing what they already know. Get around people who want to know more. And then the last one. Oh gosh. Sorry. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason. He's writing with purpose. Starting in verse 4. Uh, it says, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The purpose, the purpose with which Luke writes is so that most excellent Theophilus may be certain about the things that were, he's been taught. And we don't know we don't know who Theophilus is. We're left to believe one of two things. Theophilus is either a new Christian who knows nothing but has experienced. And Luke does not want Theophilus to move on in life just based on experience. And so he offers him investigated, thorough, long-followed accounts of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Or, Theophilus is someone who is exploring this whole Jesus thing. He's yet to experience something, but he wants to know more. And this is why this, this sermon was titled Most Excellent Theophilus. Because all of us are Theophilus. All of us. Every single person in this room needs to hear an outsider ethnically, an outsider chronologically, but a fully invested, investigated view on who Jesus is and what he's done. Nathan sent me something yesterday in his, in his studies of, of the book of Luke. And it, it just talked about kind of the, the spiritual differences between Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. Early on, Matthew was the primary accepted gospel. That's the go-to. It was, but then things changed. And for some reason, people gravitated to Mark. But there are some differences in this one. There are stories inside of the book of Luke that are not in the other two. 
which could lead you to ask some questions. Well, why did Luke think that that was important? And here's why. Jesus cared about some things. And Matthew told us what Jesus cared about through his lens. Because Luke, Matthew was trying to accomplish this. Mark was trying to accomplish this. And John was trying to accomplish something all on his own. Because God purposed each one of them to do something different. Here's the lens that the Lord inspired Luke to write down. Here's who God cares for. This isn't just about the things that Jesus accomplished. But it was God's heart for slaves, sick, women, beaten and accused women, other, other ethnicities. The, the story of the Good Samaritan isn't included in, in Matthew and Mark. Why? Because Luke was telling us of God's heart for the marginalized, the overlooked, the outsiders. Matthew, as a Jew, was writing to convince Jews of the story of Jesus. Luke, a Gentile, an outsider, an overlooked, was writing to show that God's heart is not just for those people of promise, but God's heart is for you. So most excellent Theophilus, I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught. And to do that, I have investigated thoroughly. And I provide for you a declaration of things that must be believed. So go back to the question, why do I find it so difficult to share my faith And there's just one question. Have you thoroughly investigated this declaration of things that must be believed? Do you know the story of Jesus? Do you know what Jesus thinks and cares about? Because if you don't, if all you have is your experience, then here's the follow-up questions. Well, what are you afraid of in sharing your faith? Well, what if they ask me a question I don't know how to answer? Which is why some pastors have taken this approach. Well, then you bring your friends to church and I will share the story of God through the cross of Jesus with them. You don't worry about it. I'll do it for you. You'll even hear pastors say this. If you do the thing you, I can't do, I'll do the thing you can't do. Which, which, which is, I can't go and meet all of your friends. So if you'll bring your friends here so that I can meet them, you'll do the thing I can't do, I will share the gospel with people, the thing you can't do. No. 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 This is either a declaration of things that must be believed or it is not. And we take it as such. It is a declaration of things that must be believed. Which means we have to investigate them. We cannot pass on an experiential Christianity 
Because experiential Christianity gets wrecked every four years at the election. We've got to get back to Christian values. We have to get back to the values that America was founded on. We have turned our backs on God and God has turned his back on America. Here's the deal. God was never for America. And America was never for God. You don't believe me? Go investigate the things that Thomas Jefferson said about God. They didn't leave England so that we could establish a Christian country. They left England so they could worship God any way they wanted to. We don't want the king to tell us how to worship. What happened was we got to America and we said, we don't want the king to tell us how to worship here either. Not that king, that one. We don't want people to tell us how to worship. I do. I want to be told how to worship. I want to be told how to preach. I want to be told how to teach. I don't want that from you. But when I walk away from the thing that I want it from, I sure as heck want you to remind me. Experiential Christianity gets wrecked at the earliest sign of opposition, at the earliest sign of difficulty. Well, that's just not my experience. Well, either the Bible's wrong or your experience is wrong. And I'm not comfortable choosing your experience. Feel comfort, I'm not in comfortable choosing my experience either. So we're going to explore Luke's declaration of things that must be believed. The next four weeks, we're going to look at the birth of joy. We're going to look at the cousin of joy, the foretelling of joy, then the cousin of joy, then the mother of joy. Maybe some of you grew up in a Catholic tradition and you believe certain things about Mary. We're going to talk about not what the church tells us, not what our experience tells us, but what does the Bible tell us about Mary? Who is Mary? Why did God pick her out? Good news is I think Nathan's doing that one. The Lord sees it in his providential hand that I don't ever have to do the hard ones. We're going to come to the table this morning. We're going to feast on the body and the blood that we sang about earlier. Because at all times, we want to be people, like that song says, who cast our minds to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. That we would see his wounds, his hands, his feet, but that we would know that he isn't still there, dead. But the power of God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, making requests on our behalf. 
when we pray, we speak directly to Jesus. We don't need to, you don't have to come to me. And I don't have to pray for you. I will pray for you. But I'm going to pray to the same Jesus that you are. Who's going to talk to the Father for you. And so over the next who knows how many weeks, we are going to explore these things taught to us by God through the pen of Luke. A man who wouldn't just give us what he'd heard and experienced, but something that he thoroughly investigated that will point us to our need to do this together. So you can join a small group, Ed and Donna's, Mondays and every other Fridays. Vinnie and Michonne's Saturday nights. John and Chris here on Wednesday nights. The ladies on Wednesday nights. We got places where you can investigate these things with people. You want to do it with just women? You want to do it as a couple? You want to dive deep? We, we've got it. Because we are invested in you. Because God is invested in you. So as we sing of this God who puts all things back together through his son Jesus, come to the table. Feast on his body that was broken for you. Drink in his blood that was shed that you may have forgiveness of sin. He's the God of the impossible. Nothing is impossible for him. So as we sing, you come.